0: Open your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, please. Well, for uh, some years, I've had the habit of having a Halls cough drop between Sunday school and church. I have a Halls cough drop and some water try to keep my throat moist. During the week this week, I found myself kind of coughing with a dry throat, so I reached in my desk and got a cough drop. And, and as I... Unwrapped, as I unwrapped a little paper, I got to looking at it and I thought, there's stuff written on that little paper. And, and I looked at it more and it says, a pep talk in every drop. <laughs> and then I, I got to reading the little, uh, the little pep talk that was on there and I, I saw this one right here, inspire envy. <laughs> and I thought, job done. who doesn't want to dress like this? Who doesn't want to look like this? You saw me up here next to Mr. Muscley. I think I look pretty good. Who doesn't want to drive a car like mine? Well, yeah, I got you there, didn't I? Yeah. Who? Who? <laughs> Who doesn't want to be on a first name and cell phone number with their orthopedic surgeon? (laughs) I got it all going on. If I'm not inspiring envy, who is? You know, there used to be a cell phone called an envy. The ironic thing is nobody envies it anymore. (laughs) The LG envy. Our society just like the society in Corinth in A.D. 65 thinks it's normal to be proud and to seek the envy of other people. I mean, you know, they wrote on there, inspire envy. Somebody thinks that's, that's good advice. This way of thinking was in the first century, and is so pervasive in our society, it's so normal, that Christians can even slip into it and think it's normal, rather than realizing it's worldly and sinful and harmful. And as the Apostle Paul continues to address this big problem of pride and arrogance in the Corinthian church, he's gonna address this truth right here. Scriptural thinking, biblical thinking, produces humility, It produces humility. Follow as I read from 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of the one against the other. For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you had received it? You are already full, you're already rich, you've reigned as kings without us. And indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men." We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things until now. The first thing that we're going to learn in this passage is this. Scriptural thinking replaces pride with respect. Look at verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred, or I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Throughout the first three and a half chapters of this book, Paul has been talking about the attitudes that the Corinthians had. They were all arrogant about themselves, about their leaders, who's great and who's not. This is in the church that they were acting that way. And so as the Apostle Paul taught a series of truths from God, he consistently applied it, and that's what the uh, the New King James translates this figuratively transferred. He, he applied it. He said, here is Paul and Apollos, here's how these truths apply to us, and I'm doing that so you can understand how they ought to apply to you. And I love, I love what he does at the end of verse 6. He makes it really clear, that you may learn. The Apostle Paul didn't, uh, he wasn't cagey. He wasn't sophisticated or fancy with the way that he taught. He said, I've done this so you can learn. Now what is it he wanted them to learn? Not to think beyond what is written and being puffed up one or being proud against one for another. Don't go beyond what is written. What an interesting phrase that really isn't explained right there in the verse. But whenever a New Testament author like Paul or Peter or John, Matthew whenever they talked about what is written, they were always referring to the Old Testament. And the simple fact, the simple reason for that is this. The New Testament was still in process. Gospel of John wasn't written until later, after the book of 1 Corinthians. And so when the Apostle Paul says, you should not go beyond what is written, he's saying, you know the things that are written in the Old Testament, that's the way you should think. That's the way you should think. Now, even within this book, the Apostle Paul quoted the Old Testament. Look back at chapter one, verse 19. He's uh, talking about uh, how the world sees the message of Christ and whether it thinks it's wise or foolish. And look at verse 19, "For it is written. That's always a reference to the Old Testament. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, one of the things that's hard for us, who are very literal in our American way of communication, the English language is, is, has the ability to be very precise. And we like precision in our communication and in our talking. But the Apostle Paul did, like so many of the New Testament writers, He took a thought and several thoughts from the Old Testament and pulled them together into a compilation. This reference in 119 is probably taken from Isaiah 19.3 and Isaiah 29.14, which sounds similar, but none of them are word for word. What he's saying is, you know in the Old Testament this broad truth was taught. And, And by doing that, he's saying, I'm not teaching you something new. I'm just reiterating what was already there. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. He does it again. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. These are compilation quotes from the Old Testament. Now, in addition to these specific things that he's already told them, these believers might have been familiar with a passage like this from the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord." This is the kind of truth from the Old Testament the Apostle Paul was trying to help the Corinthians to remember and to live out. When he says, don't go beyond what is written, he says, do you realize that God knows there are people in the world who are wise and who are mighty and who are rich? He knows there's people like that. But he says, what those people should do is they should glory in God. They should say, You know, I'm I'm fabulously wealthy. I'm, I'm, I'm on the Forbes list of 500 top wealthy men or women in the world. But you know what really matters to me? I know the Lord. That's what he says should be the attitude of people who are smart, people who are strong, people who are rich. The Corinthians were saying, I follow this guy and I follow that guy and our group is better than your group. They were going... They weren't just glorying, saying, oh, isn't it great to know the Lord? My leader is better than your leader. But what God is trying to get them to understand is they should be, it's it's fine to have a leader who is a good man, but you don't worship him, you don't glory in him, you don't take pride in him, you respect him, but you glory in the Lord. That's what they needed to learn. That's what this, what is written. Here's a New Testament example. Since Paul referred to what is written, we have the privilege of going beyond the Old Testament. What is written in the New Testament? We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them, to value them highly in love for their work's sake. God never says it's wrong to honor people who serve, who work hard in the body of Christ but it's wrong to be proud, to be arrogant, to divide up into groups. There is a proper esteem for those in spiritual leadership, but it should never devolve into pride and arrogance and divisiveness. Now, when Paul says, I have have applied this to myself and to Paul, he's saying, listen, this is a principle which applies to us, but it also applies to you. In, in Romans 16, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, in Romans 16, the Apostle Paul takes time to recognize over 25 individuals. 25 people who were serving the Lord in that day got a personal mention from the Apostle Paul. There's nothing wrong with, re, with valuing people, with appreciating people, with expressing that, but the praise has to go to God. And that applies doubly when it's you, about yourself. Have you served the Lord? Great. Are you worried about how much praise you're gonna get for serving the Lord? Not great. We have to take joy in the Lord. We have to to love him and glory in him. Scriptural thinking replaces pride with respect. We can respect those who serve the Lord, but we don't become proud about them. Number two, scriptural thinking replaces arrogance with thankfulness. Look at verse seven. Who makes you to differ from another? Really, he's saying, what makes you unique? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast? These three questions he asks one, two, three in a row. What makes you unique? What is the source of your abilities? And why are you bragging? And they they all stack up one on top of the other. The first one is this, what makes you unique? Neither Paul nor God, God the real author of scripture, Paul the human author, denies that people in the body of Christ are unique. We have invited Jim to come speak to us because he is a unique individual. But so are you. We're all unique individuals. God never denies that. God doesn't teach that somehow we should should devalue ourselves until we see all of ourselves just as laying on the floor and nobody's any better at this or better at that. He doesn't say that. But what he does say is how do you think about your own uniqueness? How do you think about your own uniqueness? Um, Paul and Peter and Apollos here, they were unique individuals. But the question he asks is, what makes you different? Literally, he says, who? Who makes you different? That's an interesting question. See, we could look at our lives and say, why am I different from this guy? And we might come up with a question or the answer. Well, I'm different from this guy because I did this and I did this and I did this. But if we ask the question, Who? Who made you unique? I think we come up with this answer. Every good and perfect gift, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Your uniquenesses come from God. Now, and and by the way, Jim, this is part of what happens when I bring somebody to speak. They get to be the part of my sermon illustration, so, you know, it's happened to others, and uh, you're not unique that way. <laughs> he stood right here and said, I could go through sealed training. Not. <laughs> There's a joke. Less than 20% who try make it. There is something unique, and, and from what I've heard and read and seen, it is about mind over matter. You put the pain away, whatever it is. I don't know all of those things. So if we ask the question, who made him that way? It's God. You know why? Let me ask some other questions. Who created the human mind? Who created the human will? Who determined what family we are born in? Who caused us to have a certain education? The fact that we live in America. Who put us here? Do you see a theme here? (laughs) Who orchestrated the events that led to your job, your marriage, your education, your position in society? Who did that? God did that. It's a who question, not a what question. Who makes you unique? God makes you unique. And those are just what I would call human things. You know, your physical makeup, your your mental makeup, some of that. But look what he says here. Who makes you unique? And then he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Let me put the question this way. What is the source of your abilities? And I think he's talking to these Corinthians, these Christians, about their spiritual abilities. For I say through the grace that's given to me to everyone among you, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. God never commends self-meanness. He doesn't commend us to tear ourselves down. But he says, be careful how you think about yourself. You should think about yourself soberly or with good sound judgment as God has given you a measure of faith. And he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are an ability from God to serve God. My ability to speak God's word to you is a gift from him. I didn't aspire to do this job. I didn't even aspire to come to this church. But God called, and he made that really clear. God put me in a place to get a good education, and he's still helping me to learn how to do this. The Holy Spirit motivates and illuminates my Bible study. So who deserves the credit for that? God, (laughs) absolutely, that's why I'm praying all through this process of studying and preparing and why I'm praying this morning and why I'm praying while I'm sitting right over there because it is God who does this and we all have to have that mentality. How am I able to do anything for God? It's because God has done it in me. God has put something in me. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we're sufficient, not that we have everything we need in ourselves to think of anything as of being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. You know what the liberating part of this think, this thought is? If you would really understand that it is God who works in you and through you, you could stop worrying about whether or not you're sufficient. Jim has never spoken to a church to a bunch of men Is that just human bravado that is going to propel him on? I don't think so. After talking to him, I know that he walks with the Lord. The Lord is going to open his mouth because I've been praying for it. And he'll do it for you. He'll do it for you. You are not sufficient in yourself, but you are sufficient in God. What a great thing. What is the source of your abilities? Number three, then he asks, so he says, if God made you who you are, made you the unique person you are, if God gave you the ability to serve him, then the, the logical third question is, why are you bragging? Why are you bragging? He's, these people were bragging about, I'm in this group, and I follow that guy, and so on. And, and Paul says, look, God didn't do that. You have done that yourself. John the Baptist was a prophet, an Old Testament-era prophet commissioned by God to prepare Israel for the ministry of Christ by preaching God's truth. He was so effective that the scripture tells us all Israel went out to hear him. All Israel. Now, I don't think they all went out at the same time. But in other words, the whole nation of Israel was listening to him and hearing him. He was a big deal. And then Jesus came, and here's what some of John's disciples said. They came to John, the Baptist, and said, Rabbi, or teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and everyone's going to him. Our church is losing, John, and his church is growing. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from above. Translate that, John said, I'm not the special thing here, guys. God gave me a gift. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Apostle John had his personal perspective right. He knew he was God's servant. He knew God made him who he was, so he was fine to fade into the background if that was going to be God's will. The Corinthians were all inflated with their own greatness. They they almost give you the impression that they came up with the Christianity thing themselves. That's why next week we're going to hear the Apostle Paul say, hey, You only have one spiritual father. If it's God who makes us unique, if it's God who gives me my ability, then it should be God who gets the glory, which takes us right back to the beginning of this book. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let him glory in the Lord. That's what we need to do. The Corinthian believers needed to learn to think scripturally about themselves and their leaders. They needed to understand where their ability came from. And they needed to exchange their common sense for a godly view of reality. That's our third point here. Scriptural thinking replaces common sense with a godly reality. Look at verse 8. The Apostle Paul is talking sort of um, facetiously, he's, he's making fun of them and the way they talked about themselves. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. They looked at themselves and they said, we've got enough of everything. We're rich. We're You know, self-sufficient. Not only that, We reign. We have so much, we'll never do anything again. The idea, it's kind of a progression here. You're full, and then you're self-sufficient. You're independent, and then you're just in control of the world. That's how, somehow, Paul is going over the top, but trying to help them understand their self-image. Listen how similar that sounds to this passage from Revelation 3. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write this. These things says the amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of the creation of God. Because you say, I am rich, I am wealthy, and I need nothing. Now if you know your Bible well, you know that's a scary comparison because what comes later in the next few verses is Christ saying, you guys are messed up and you got some repenting to do or else there's going to be some hard discipline coming. When I, when I use the term common sense in this point, I'm drawing a, a difference between the natural way our society thinks and the way that godly people should think, because it appears that the Corinthians were enjoying good times, food on the table, church was growing, and all later in this book we're going to see that all kinds of miraculous spiritual things were happening, and it would almost seem that they said this, you can't argue with success. Can't argue with success. Look at how rich we are. Look at how fat and full and everything. And you're gonna come in here and tell us we've got a spiritual problem? And the Apostle Paul says, I absolutely am. The people of Corinth, according to what we're gonna read in these verses after here, Had the same common sense that people today have. Good people have comfortable lives, hard lives are the lot of lousy people. Now, that's a very simplistic overstatement, but isn't that what Job's friends said to him? That Job starts with God saying, This guy is the most righteous guy on the planet. And then God allowed Satan to test him and try him through physical difficulties. And along come his friends and say, Job, there can only be one reason you are suffering, and that is because you have done something wrong. And Job said, I'm telling you guys, I haven't done anything wrong. Job didn't know what was going on, but he knew he had been a righteous man. The Corinthians looked at their life and said, well, obviously we are spiritual people we've got it going on look at all the stuff we have and, and all of our success and then look at the apostles look at the contrast that that the apostle paul says you folks see yourselves this way look at us condemned to death a spectacle fools weak dishonored hungry and thirsty poorly clothed beaten homeless laboring reviled defamed Considered to be sewage. These first two phrases, condemned to death and spectacle, if you look at your text, the Apostle Paul says, I believe that God has put us last. Verse nine, he has displayed us as apostles last as men condemned to death. He's drawing from an imagery that we don't have in our common life. It's from warfare. And when the Romans went and conquered a place, they would come back to Rome and the general who was in charge would be at the head of the parade, and then the soldiers would be there. And at the end of the parade would be a bunch of people they had conquered. Those people are going to become slaves, and at the end of that would be people condemned to death, which might be the king of that other country or some other folks like that. And the apostle Paul says, "'I think God has put us apostles at the end of the parade as those who are condemned to death.'" Those people would end up in the Roman uh, amphitheater with the wild beasts and so on for the sport of the spectators. And the Apostle Paul says, I think God has made us apostles like that. We're like people condemned to death. We're like people, and he wasn't saying that God had condemned them to death. He's saying that God has put us in a place where other people, they see us in all of these ways, And the Apostle Paul experienced all of this. I I summarized the last two phrases as considered to be sewage. He says, the the actual words are, verse 13, filth of the world and off-scouring. And the literal rendering would be something like the stuff that you scrape off your dishes after you're done eating. And in my parlance, that's sewage because it goes in the sewer. You're the off-scouring He said, that's how people see us. The Apostle Paul lived his life like this. And the Corinthians looked at him and said, you ain't much. And why was that? They looked at themselves and said, we're something. But the Apostle Paul, the man who led us to the Lord, the Apostle Paul, he's nothing. Because look at the condition of his life. They just didn't get it. The Corinthians failed to remember this teaching if it had been shared with them or they hadn't learned the teaching yet from Jesus himself when he said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were, the, if you were of the world, in other words, if you were a worldly person, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. In other words, they're gonna hate you because they hated me, because they do not know him who sent me. And as if that isn't enough, Jesus made another stronger statement. These things I have spoken to you that in me you, may, you will have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul was living that scripture. And what did he get for it from the Christians? Insult. <laughs> Jesus did not predict an easy life for his followers. In the realm of being manly, Christianity is not at the top of the list. And and I think Jim's fear that somebody would look at him and say, you're weak because you're a Christian, is a real fear. It's It's a real possibility. Because the people of the world, many of them, our society as a whole these days, is not in love with Christ or Christianity. Maybe the reality is that that somehow we reprove their life and so they don't like that. I don't know. But I know whether it's the locker room or the workplace or the battlefield or wherever it is, people aren't clamoring saying, I want to be known as a Christian. The Apostle Paul, maybe I'm going to overstate this, but the Apostle Paul appeared to be 100% dedicated to the Lord. <laughs> Maybe only 98, I don't know. And he just gave himself to the Lord. And, and because of that, he had difficulty. And the Corinthians, who were fat and happy, said, man, something, you're not living right, Paul. We are living right. Peter came to a, a point while Christ was on earth, Jesus had just made some statements that made Christianity kind of hard. He said it's hard for those who are rich to give up their trust in riches and come to faith in Christ. And Peter replied by saying this, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? Isn't that great statement? Okay, we're following you, what are you gonna give us? Peter was right up front, he He spoke like we think. So Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you, in the regeneration, he's talking about the resurrection, in the future, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's exactly what Paul was trying to get across to the Corinthians. He said, listen, Corinthians, you folks think you've got it going on because your life is really good and comfortable and easy, and so you're all proud about this and that and the other, and you look at me and you see me struggling and starving and my clothes aren't too fancy, and you think I'm nothing because I'm not worldly successful? Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first. I can only imagine the place of honor that Paul will have. I went to a Christian college, largely because my parents wanted me to. I wasn't opposed to it. It's kind of like, okay, whatever. Whatever. But I wasn't proud of it. In fact, I was a little bit ashamed of it. The name of the school at that time, it's called Corbin University, now it was called Western Baptist Bible College. And I went to a secular high school. And I, you know, I certainly wasn't one of the cool kids. I know you find that hard to imagine. (laughs) But I had friends, you know, and so on, and we were in the band, and the this and that and the other. but I wasn't going around, I didn't offer to anybody and say, I'm going to Western Baptist Bible College. Because I wasn't living for the Lord. <laughs> Simple as that. I remember one of my friends who was in the band, who was kind of a, he was either an alky or a stoner, I don't know which. And he said, hey, are, are you going to be like a band director in a monastery? What part of Baptist don't you get here? <laughs> and, and honestly, I didn't even want to talk about it. Because I was not proud of it. I was ashamed. I, I would, if I'd have been going to the University of Washington, I'd say, I'm going to the University of Washington. Okay. Would have been the worst thing that could ever happen to me, but I would have been proud of it. I was ashamed because I wasn't living for the Lord. I cared more about the esteem of my classmates Than the esteem of the Lord. I did not want to be a loser like Paul. Isn't that a funny phrase? A loser like Paul. I can only hope to be a loser like Paul when I grow up. Heavenly Father, this world is not our home and it's not our friend. And even sometimes in the Christian church, values get upside down. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us glory in you. Help us be willing to be counted with you and with Paul and with all of those who truly name your name. Forgive me for my shame that was misplaced. Help us to be followers of you and to know your peace and joy and to look forward to that day when Christ will sit on the throne and we will reign with him. And then then the right things will be right. Help us to glory in that day. I pray in Christ's name, amen.